Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is Terry Leroy from Leroy 13 and Granny Four Barrel, and you're listening to Talking Metal. I'm Alexandra Zerner, and you're listening to Talking Metal. Hey guys, it's Mark Striegel, and we have some great guests on today's episode. And uh, there's a lot of guests on today's episode. So I'm not going to talk much, but just wanted to give a shout out to all the patrons who are supporting us on Patreon right now. So you guys rock. You're the reason this show keeps going and going and going. Here we are, episode 910. And it's, it's really, at this point, a, a big part of the reason I'm still doing this is for these people I'm about to mention right now. Metal Dan. Metal Dan, I don't know if you know this, you are our longest running supporter. You've been with us longer than anyone. So just a big shout out to the man himself, Metal Dan, who supports me on Patreon, my longest supporter on Patreon. John Bovari, Steve Hoker, Mike Jones, Michael Street, Fred Roots, David Gray, James Bennett, Anthony Mackey, Sean Francois Blas, Ron Keel, Stephen Saylor, Jason Seth, Joe Ryan, Matt Carroll, Drake, Sam Soupy, Jerry from Long Island, Dan Gurwan, Brad Dahl from Utah, Leo, Leo from Alaska. Uh, I, I wish I, I got to figure out how to pronounce your last name. Sashempin, Leo from Alaska. I have no idea how to pronounce your last name. Sorry. Kenny McCrimmon. Gregory Muse, Tommy Anderson, Steven Rodriguez, Chris Riley, Jeremy Weltman, Andrew Miller, Mario Charance, Sean Richmond, Gene Eugene DX, Joey Vancheri, Glenn Watson, Victor Guzman, Brent Carter, Jerry from Salt Lake City, not to be confused with Jerry from Long Island. Uh, Patrick Sabin. Johan Erdestrom. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. He told me how to pronounce it. Erdestrom. I think I got that. Is that right, Johan? And finally, thanks to family. I have family supporting me on Patreon. The first person from my family to support me on Patreon. And uh, that's awesome. Thanks, Dad. Denny Striegel has joined us on Patreon. So... Uh, what a great group of people, whether you are active on Patreon or just throwing us the money to support us there. It doesn't matter. It's all good. We appreciate the support and the love that we get on Patreon. And we give you bonus content there every single week. So please check it out. All right, let's do this. Let's get into the episode. <laughs> Okay, this episode is jam-packed. We got Carmine Apiece, we got Tony Kosminski, we've got Terry Leroy of Granny for Barrel and Leroy 13, and the extraordinary musician Alexandra Zerner. So, wow, 
I'm not going to talk much. Uh, let's let's just blow through a couple quick headlines, and then we'll get right into these discussions. Now, Larry Flint died this week. I think this is a significant um, thing to the heavy metal community, not because he was a fighter for freedom of speech and had Hustler Magazine. I think it's because he gave us Rip Magazine, and we're going to talk to Tony Kosminski about that in just a bit. So Alice Cooper has come out and said he had COVID and now he's gotten the COVID vaccine. So I actually heard this from an insider a while ago that Alice was sick with COVID, but it sounds like he is is better and must be fully recovered if he got the vaccine. Geezer Butler has gotten his second round of vaccine for COVID. Ozzy's gotten his first round. This is all good. This is all good stuff, man. And we all have to get it as soon as we can. Uh, Mickey D has said playing with the Scorpions is so much more physically demanding than performing with Motorhead ever was. That's interesting. I, I don't doubt it, but I'm surprised actually in some ways. Um, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that, guys? The Butcher Babies have been releasing some of their new music, and wow, have they changed musical direction, in my opinion. I like it. It's got like a pop vibe element, still heavy, still hard to it, but I really, I'm enjoying it myself. I don't know how you guys are feeling about the new Butcher Babies, but I am digging it. And they gave a great interview to my friend, uh, Mike Friedman, Dr. Mike Friedman, who lives around the corner and has his own podcast called uh, Hardcore Humanism. So check that podcast out if you haven't heard it yet. Mike is a good friend of mine. Our kids play Fortnite together. So (laughs) there you go. Uh, Rat still hasn't found a replacement for guitarist Chris Zanders, says Jordan Ziff. I got to reach back out to Jordan. He was one of our last in-person interviews before COVID hit back in late 2019 and I would love to talk with him again because what the hell is going on with Rat? I mean, we're hearing they might get the original lineup back minus Robin Crosby for an additional studio record, but it sounds like Jordan is still in the in the mix. Anyways, the waters seem the Rat waters currently seem muddy. I'm confused with what they're doing and who's in the band currently. So, uh, yeah. David Ellison says the Megadeth-branded Mega Cruise will return. And I'll end it there just with these thoughts. I, I never went on these cruises. I, you know, I've always been a little freaked out about getting seasick. And you're always hearing about these, you know, even pre-COVID, these viruses spreading and E. coli and all this shit that happens on these cruises. But I, I think I'm ready, man. I don't want to live my life in fear anymore after this covid thing not that i really did in the past but i'm ready to do things that sound like they'd be fun and sometimes fun has a risk listen being on a cruise can't be any more risky than going skiing and i ski right i mean every year at whiteface mountain where i ski in lake placid somebody dies like literally every year sometimes more than one so going on a cruise to me What's the worst? I lose a couple grand and I get uh, seasick. When I say I lose a couple grand because I get seasick, you know. And the best is it sounds like such a fun time. Just a nice getaway, warm weather. I'm imagining some beautiful scenery at sea, uh, you know, and, and just some great music. So I don't know. I'm thinking I may finally take the plunge. I realize it's probably not going to be until 2022 at this point. But I'm actually, for the first time in my life, thinking, 
eh, I'll do a cruise. Yeah, and I know they're environmentally, they're a disaster for the planet and all this stuff, but eh, you got you got to pick your battles, you know. I think it would be fun to do. It's not like I'm going on a cruise every month. You know, I think it'd be fun to do a couple times in a lifetime, maybe more than that. So that's where I'm at. Let's get into a discussion right now with, ah, I got so many interviews and they're all pretty good here. Let's do a short one first. This is Carmine Apice, the legendary drummer who played with Cactus, Vanilla Fudge, Rod Stewart, Ozzy Osbourne, Blue Murder. This is a very short interlude of him telling me about his band, King Cobra from the 80s. This is only a few minutes, so let's check it out. Carmen, let's talk about King Cobra, because at some point, like you mentioned, you do take Sharon's advice, and you form your own band, and you guys had a unique look. We'll start yeah. with the look. Talk about the look and, and how that all came well, about. Well, the look came about when we were on tour with Ozzy. You know, you had Motley Crue. Motley Crue had three guys with black hair and the lead singer, Vince, was blonde. So I said, you know, I'm going to do the reverse. Right. I have all blondes and I have the black hair, but we'll have colors in our hair. We call it Cobra Colors with a K, right. you know? And everything King Cobra with a K, everything was KK. So now we got a big record deal and we got a big merchandising deal. And I put all the money back into the band. I gave everybody $2,500 a piece to go out to Melrose and buy cool clothes. Right. You know, we had hairdressers doing the hair, bought a state set, it cost me $20,000 for the state set, which we used in the Hunger video. And we were on Capitol Records and at least the first record, Ready Strike, had the leopard cover and it was, you know, everybody was talking about the band. And the only thing that happened was Capitol Records didn't do their job. They didn't push it enough, you think? They, 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 didn't, yeah. they didn't get it on the radio enough. They didn't push it enough. And they just didn't do their job. The fascinating thing that I never knew that I learned from your book about King Cobra is how much you guys were connected to Bullet Boys. Yeah. So at some point, Mark leaves King Cobra. Mark, Mark Free, Free left King Cobra. And another Mark, Mark, Mark Torian. Mark Torian, we brought him in. He comes in. He Mark comes in, and we brought yeah. Lonnie in. And we were rehearsing all the time, writing new songs. Came up with the idea to do For the Love of Money. Right. We wrote uh, a song called uh, Smooth Up In Ya with, with King Cobra. We so you wrote that songs. song. We with were those writing guys. those songs. Right. We did a couple of gigs. One in Spain, mm-hmm. which we had 4,000 people. It was awesome. King Cobra had a big following there. And then we did uh, a few gigs in LA. The next thing you know, the guy who was my merch guy for King Cobra somehow got them a deal with Warner Brothers as another band. Right. And they called it Bullet Boys. And they took these songs f- from that we were working on with King Cobra. Right. They took it to the Bullet Boys. So you, and Smooth Up In You became like a, a, an MTV kind of hit. And that was something you guys were, were Yeah, and For the Love of Money was my idea to, to do that. And we started you know, working on that. And then they, they released that as well. Wow. You know, Kissing Kitty was another King Cobra song. You know, that you ever consider going after them at that point? No, legally, yeah, I was like, I was just pissed off. But then they knew I was pissed off. And uh, I forgot what it was. Uh, it was... A, I had a birthday party at my house in yeah. Northridge, and I, I invited Mick 
and they came. Um, they gave me a gold, re a gold or a platinum record. Right. I think it was a gold record. Probably gold. I don't know that it, it went. It's platinum, a gold right? record. <laughs> and they said, "Thank you for your your help and right. to make this record." So that was their like signing off. Right. On me and just being cool with me, you know. Cool. Big thanks to Carmine Apiece for joining me, talking about his band from the 80s, King Cobra. I do want to remind everyone to use those Amazon links, which are available on my website, markstriegel.net. Just uh, before you do your shopping on Amazon, use those links to take you over to Amazon. You also can support me with a PayPal donation at that same website, markstrigl.net. Anything you can do to support. Buy a t-shirt for $15. Use the PayPal tab there. Just let me know your size and your address. If you live in the United States, 15 If you live outside of the United States, 20 bucks, American. And anything you can do to support. Leave a review for this on iTunes. Uh, tag me and share it on social media. I'll be sure to follow you back. And, of course, there's the Patreon page, which is our preferred way of support. So please support me and sign up for my email. It's a weekly email. You can do that by going to markstriegel.net. There's a little thing. You just plug your email address in there, and you will get every Friday an email from me summarizing everything I've been up to. All right, so I'm trying to think. Let's, let's go with my interview with Terry Leroy from Granny for Barrel. And if you're a fan of Dio, this is uh, there's some Dio stuff in here, and he's one one of the new things he's doing is a cover of a Dio song, which really sounds good. You got to check it out. So let's talk with Terry. Here we go. Hey, it's Mark Striegel, and we are talking with Terry Leroy, who always has so much great stuff going on. Uh, Terry, last time we hung out, uh, well, I hung out with Granny, I guess it was, was um, <laughs> in Montclair, New Jersey, not far from my house. We had breakfast together and listened to some songs in the studio. You remember okay. that? That's right. I do remember that. That was a little listening, a breakfast heavy metal listening party. Yeah. Yeah. Some mimosas going around. It was, it was a great time. I had my kids <laughs> with me and that was uh, that was a fun memory for me, but let's talk about what you're currently up to because I just heard this amazing song, a Dio song, and it was done so well. You guys did such a authentic job, you know, added some little things to kind of make it your own, but still really stuck true to the way it was originally given to us. And uh, it sounds just great. It is Stand Up and Shout, the lead song off of the classic Holy Diver record. You guys covered it and it's for a really great cause. Can you talk about the project that does this or the band that does this, who's involved, how this all came about. Absolutely. So yeah, let's just, uh, we'll start at the beginning. So uh, November, not November a few months ago, but November a year ago, right? just before COVID, we were down in LA playing a show at the Whiskey. And we were about to also make an appearance a few days later at the Bull for Ronnie event. So we were in town with, you know, Ronnie Dio on our mind. and. So that night before, I think it were two nights before on a Monday at the Whiskey, uh, 
we invited Wendy to the show. Now, when you say we, you're talking granny for barrel. Yes, exactly. Right. So this was before Leroy 13 existed. Yes. Uh, So we, granny, uh, we invited Wendy. She came to the show. We played stand up and shout. We finished the set off with that because we're like, let's give her a treat. One of my favorite songs to sing. And uh, she really loved it. It was a great evening. We had an awesome time. A few days later, did the bowl for Ronnie came home after a few more shows. And uh, then we got contacted by Wendy and she was like, hey, yeah, I really enjoyed you guys. Would love to have Granny play at the Ride for Ronnie event in May. So we were like, awesome. Let's, let's wow, do it. what and an honor. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, it was a huge honor. So again, I'm still in deal mode. I'm ready to go, but then COVID happens. So everything gets shut down. So nobody's doing anything. Granny's not doing anything. No, No one's doing anything. And um, I was like, man, let's, uh, what can we do to, I'm still in Ronnie Dio mode. Let's do something. Let's just, so I called David Bendeth, who I've been recording with. And uh, yeah, you met us down there at the studio in Montclair there a year ago. And uh, right. I was like, hey, let's, let's record Stand Up and Shout. What do you think about doing that? And maybe we could just gather up, you know, a new group of guys. And I would, I was already working with Aaron Pauly from Of Mice and Men. We're doing some co-writing. Yeah. And for anybody who doesn't know David, he of course is the uh, like award-winning multi-platinum producer that, that you worked with on the Granny for Barrel album. Yes. And he's, yeah, I mean, his discography is massive. Everything from Breaking Benjamin to Beartooth, I Prevail. I mean, he's got a 30 year career, think multi-platinum. And David was like, yeah, sounds great. I was like, you know what, let's, let's do this. Who do you have in your cache of musicians that we could use? And uh, let's donate all the proceeds hundred percent to the charity. We were all about the charity anyways, as we were going to head down to do the ride for Ronnie. So that's how the whole thing started. And then David made a few phone calls. Next thing you know, we get Troy from Evanescence, we get Will Hunt from Evanescence, and we get Sammy Baller from Detroit. And we're, we got this little, like, super group. And we're like, hey, let's do all this via Zoom. Yeah. Because we recorded this early on um, in the in the COVID situation. Okay. We weren't really sure what was happening. So we're like, well, why don't we just do this remotely? And that's how it started. Yeah. Yeah. And great stuff. And can you talk a little bit about where the proceeds are going and the charity? Yeah. So. The Ronnie Dio Stand Up and Shout Cancer Fund, it's a 501c, not-for-profit. It's a, it's a charity for cancer, supports research, detection, and prevention. And 100% of the proceeds of this song, no matter how they come in, Spotify, videos, radio, right. whatever, whatever comes in, whatever revenue, it goes directly to those guys. Um, and we feel really good about that. It's, it's a... I don't know it's an honor to be involved. It's a it's a huge honor to have Wendy put her stamp on this. Yeah, a great quote for the press release. Um, the board unanimously approved the song, and it's just it just feels great. And where can people listen to it? Where's the best place to listen to it? Is it Spotify? Is it downloaded? Uh, yeah, how do you-, I mean, you know? So just strictly audio, obviously Spotify. But if you want to check out the video. This is the actual Zoom video of us playing it live in the studio. You can either watch that on YouTube or Facebook. I think the Facebook one has a half a million views so far and like 3,000 shares, which is pretty, pretty cool. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And and the... 
do you think after COVID passes that you will have a chance to finally play the, uh, what was it, the ride for Ani? Yeah, I sure do hope so, whether it's Granny or whether it's Leroy 13. Right. Yeah, so, you know, however, however that works out, because as you know, from the other musicians I mentioned, those are all working musicians in big bands that depending on availability, but we'll make it happen somehow. Right. Okay. So I do want to get to granny for barrel, but as far as Leroy 13 goes, you have this one great song out. It sounds amazing. And it is uh, just done wonderfully for a great cause. Is there more from Leroy 13 that we can expect? Is this a a project that's going to give us more moving forward? It absolutely is. Uh, Will and I have been having a lot of discussions. In fact, Will's been playing on some Granny Four Barrel material, anyways. Um, not sure if that would be something where you know he he goes on the road with us. But Leroy Thirteen, absolutely. Uh, the question is, Mark, is it you know the next track? Is it a cover? Is it original? Um, and if all the guys aren't available again, what other all-star lineup do we do we get? So we're right. just having some discussions right now, but we're having a lot of fun talking about what we're going to do next. Wow. Okay. So then, Granny for Barrel. Where are we at with uh, with with Granny? What is she up to? What what's cooking? So Granny, I mean, the crazy old woman has a new song coming right. out. Right on February 26th. Oh, wow. Okay. Right around couple the corner. Weeks, couple yeah. weeks. Yeah. Worldwide. We got a brand new video. It was uh, filmed by David Brodsky from my good eye visuals. He did nitro sexy. Okay. Cool. Um, he, he's done some fantastic videos and um, he's uh, so, 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 so we got the video, we got the song coming out. Not sure who's going to premiere it. Uh, our publicist is trying to find a premiere. Maybe it'll be, I don't know, Loudwire, one of the big outlets will premiere. Right. Okay. Yeah, the 26th, The Art of Deception. That's wow. what it's called. Very cool. And stylistically, where are we going with it? Is it similar to what we've heard in the past from Granny for Barrel or a new direction? Yeah, a little bit darker. You know, Granny, okay. Granny, we had a lot of fun, tongue-in-cheek fun. And even right. though it was, you know, straight metal in your face, you know, uninhibited reckless abandon this is a little darker so uh fans of ghost and uh just bands like that with a little bit of a darker a little more serious theme this time but i think it's a badass track another song we did with david bendeth and uh, i'm excited to see what people think i cannot wait to hear it and let's talk circle back to dio because i did want to mention that Dio, uh, as we know, from upstate New York, and you're from upstate New York too, right? Is it close to where Ronnie is from? Yeah, so I'm in, technically in Oswego, which is right on Lake Ontario, but we just say Syracuse because it's you know 30 miles down the road, but then 30 right. miles beyond that is Cortland. So Cortland is Ronnie's hometown. It's about an hour from where we live. So my whole life, I mean, I've grown up in Ronnie Dio country. I'm all about yeah. Ronnie Dio. He's he's one of my favorite, absolute favorite vocalists ever. Yeah, yeah, it's such a, a beautiful part of the the country. We uh, yeah. we bought a we just bought a puppy up there right outside of Syracuse. So we fall yeah we drove oh. up there the the finger we drove through the Finger Lakes and just beautiful drive in the fall with all the leaves and stuff. So oh, yeah. it's beautiful. What kind of puppy? Uh, it's a pug. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> What's his name? Uh, Otis, Otis. Yeah. 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 So we got Otis the pug up there. (laughs) So is there any talk about acts like 
Granny for Barrel returning to the road? Are we still too early in in this to actually plan live dates? I mean, sure, there are some bands playing live to you know limited uh, capacity places, but I'm talking like actual tours where we're you know filling clubs and stuff like that. Are we still a ways away from that even being spoken about? Unfortunately, I mean you know, not, not necessarily spoken about because we're always going, Hey, when are we going to do this again? But we're, you know, it's always out there. We, we can't really, we can't really plan on it, but we can do things like this. I mean, we have a, a ton of songs. We can just keep releasing songs. We'll keep the flame alive. We'll keep doing things like, you know, this with you, which we really appreciate. And, uh, whenever it's safe, that's when we'll be back. Right on. Well, we can't wait for that. Let's talk a little bit about your history. Sure. Pre-Granny for Barrel. Can you give us a, a little autobiography, if you will, about your his, your musical history? Yeah, so for about a good 10-year run before Granny, I had a band called Titanium Black. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was a band that released a one-time full-length CD with 14 tracks. And that was produced by Michael Wagner, mm-hmm. uh, legendary Michael Wagner. Sure. And... Um, yeah, that band did a lot of cool things, played a lot of shows over in Europe. We did some things with Man of War uh, festivals and things like that. Right. Played, played in Sweden, um, did a lot of regional stuff up here in upstate. But that band was that was a super cool band. Uh, I think there's some a few songs and videos floating around on YouTube. Titanium Black. Cool. And before that, oh, man, I've been in so many bands. In fact, the name Leroy 13 came about because that was the 13th project that I've been involved in since I've been involved in music. Oh, wow. Okay. So yeah. Cool. And it's kind of cool. Cause well, it's 13, it's heavy metal. Right on. <laughs> and growing up, like who were, you have an amazing voice. Growing up, did you, Thanks, did you take lessons? Did you practice or was it just something that was natural? You know, it started out natural. It was like singing along with my favorite bands, which at the time were, I mean, way back, I'm talking way back, man. So we're, this is, I'm talking meatloaf. <laughs> okay. was one of the first albums I ever owned and I bought it. Bad Out of Hell. Yeah, Bad Out of Hell, man. Jim Steinman tracks, you know, what, what a great songwriter that guy is. But I bought that record specifically uh, when I was 14 because I liked the cover. I had no idea what songs were on. I was just like the this like muscle guy, like blasting out of a graveyard yeah. on, a, on a motorcycle. Right on. Um, but I started singing meatloaf. Then I got into cheap trick and then I was into Blondie. Then I discovered Van Halen, but then ACDC came along and I was like, okay. And I started singing along with all the old Bon Scott stuff. This is pre Brian Johnson. Wow. And uh, I just really loved it. I had one of my, you know, one of my, actually my first public appearance would be my high school variety show. And I sang, uh, let there be rock. And nice. uh, I was hooked. Yeah, dude. Yeah. So, but then as the metal catalog started to build, then I started to discover all these great bands, Black Sabbath, Rainbow, Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, all the way down the line. And, and as I went on my vocal career, I just started singing to everybody and finding things that kind of fit my, my vocal style better. Um, not general. I mean, I can do a, a pretty good Bon Scott, but you know, that's a strange ass voice right there. Yeah. You only get a one of a kind <laughs> Bon Scott. It's very hard to emulate, but Ronnie and like Bruce Dickinson, that's kind of in my wheelhouse. I like to sing operatic, um, you know, go for the high notes and, 
little bit of grit here and there and, and uh, you know, Rob Halford. So that's, those are the, those are the vocalists I kind of gravitate to, but I do love a lot of the modern rock singing. Cause once these guys started doing this crazy screaming stuff, I'm like, wait a second, how, how is this, how is this happening? <laughs> and I, right. I, I taught myself how to do that. And you'll hear some of that on not this next track release, but there's some songs that we did. Well, one in particular that we wrote with Aaron Pauly and you know, his singing style. So I picked up a few tips and tricks from him, just trying to expand the tool chest, you know, right on. Right. And did you study with vocal teachers or coaches or was it just, you know, the influence of the people you've mentioned? Well, here's the thing. Like I said earlier, so I started out just singing along, but then as live performances happened, I got myself into trouble a few times blowing, blowing my voice out. What's going on? What am I doing? Well, A, you just smoked a bunch of weed. B, you just <laughs> drank a bunch of ice cold beer. Right. <laughs> and you've been talking all night, two hours before the show to all your friends. And now you don't have a voice left over. So it took me a few steps back, uh, found a vocal coach who really just, you know, there was no magic to it. It was like, hey, you just got to take care of your voice. Right. You know, stop smoking. Okay. I mean, smoke a little bit of weed if you want, but don't do it on singing days. And if you really want to be a great singer, don't fucking smoke at all. Yeah. Um, And, you know, drink a lot of water and take it easy. And so I just learned over the years and uh, how to pace myself. And you really got to take care of your body. You really do. Because if you're not feeling well, you're not singing well. Yeah. Yeah. So it's staying in shape, staying physically active and stuff, I'm sure is something that directly affects your voice. Absolutely. I mean, singing is totally an athletic endeavor. It really is. So yeah, you know, the better in shape that you are and the better that you take care of yourself, sleep is is huge. Uh, We did that Texas Hippie Coalition tour with Granny and then we went right, right after that to CKY. I think we're on the road for like 16 weeks. And, you know, we're doing 10, 12 days in a row with one day off and you got to pace yourself. Right. On. Um, and any singer that tours a lot will will agree with me. You got to You got you got to pace yourself. You can't you know, you can't just be blowing your voice out, talking all day long. It's uh, you got to protect your instrument. Right on. So let me ask you, besides, of course, the great album, Holy Diver, which you have this amazing cover of uh, the lead off track, Stand Up and Shout. What are some of your other favorite albums of all time? Well, that's easy. Um, You mentioned Bad Out of Hell. So let's let's, let's do a side. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's easy. So uh, Highway to Hell, one of my favorites. Um, The Number of the Beast, Iron Maiden. Uh, the Mob Rules is hands down my favorite Black Sabbath record ever. Uh, oh, man. I, of course, the first Van Halen record, yeah. that, blew, that blew me away. Uh, Released 43 years ago today, by the way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, bad Motorfinger. I mean, when Soundgarden hit the scene, I yeah. was like, what's going on with this singer? That's another one of my favorites, too. I forgot to mention Chris Cornell. Yeah, one mine, too. It's oh, such, my God. It's great. I remember hearing like slaves and bulldozers for the first time off of that and just could not believe what he was doing with his voice. Amazing. Crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. Vulgar display of power. That's another one of my favorite Uh, dirt from Alice in Chains. I mean, I could go down the list balls to the wall, except there's certain Mm, songs I listen to. I'm with you on all these. Yeah. Yeah. Screaming for vengeance. (laughs) Yeah. 
course. And where is the best place people can get in touch with you online? We're going to link the the video, the stand oh, up and cool. shout video in today's yeah. show notes, guys, talkingmetal.com. But uh, just uh, as far as social media goes. Well, now, since we have Leroy 13, we've got double the exposure. So really, there are, okay, there's websites for both. Leroy.Leroy13.com. There's GrannyFourBarrel.com. You've got Spotify's for both. You've got uh, YouTube accounts for both. You've got Twitter accounts. I mean, there's no way you can't know about us if you search us. Right on. Cool. And we will link some of those in the show notes for today's yep. episode. Yeah, yeah. And again, we're talking with Terry Leroy, the great vocalist of Granny for Barrel and also Leroy 13. Terry, it's been great chatting with you. Any uh, last uh, things we need to cover before I let you go? Not really, but I just want to thank you, Mark, for doing what you do. Um, it's it's guys like you that keep the flame alive. I mean, this is how we spread the word, right? And yeah, well, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. And really, dude, seriously, I, every time I do one of these interviews, I always thank the host because you guys take this time out of your day, your huge rock and metal and music aficionados. And I mean, this is what it is. We do this because we love it. <laughs> Big thanks to Terry for joining me. Check out Leroy13 and Granny for Barrel, his bands. Very cool stuff. And big shout out to my Patreon supporter, Steven Saylor, who is a big fan of this next guest. And I am too, thanks to Steven. Uh, He turned me on to her and she just does such great guitar work and instrumental work and, and songwriting. You know, a lot of, oh, she's a great shredder and stuff. No, way more than that. So much emotion in these songs. And let's talk to her right now, Alexandra Zerner. And we are going to hear what she is up to with new music right now on Talking Metal. How are you, Alexandra? I'm fine, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us again on the Talking Metal podcast. We are excited because there is news that there is a new album on the way called Silhouette. And from what I understand, this is a concept record. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about this, the concept behind it. I would also be curious to hear how this is different from your last album, Opus 1880, which came out probably, what, two, three years ago at this point? Uh, it came out two years ago, yes. So this new album, Silhouette, is coming up uh, very, very soon. Uh, the release date is on the 20th of March. Okay. And um, right now it's in process of mixing and mastering. So everything is recorded. So yeah, the album is happening. It's a conceptual album, like all my albums before, although probably they, especially the first one, probably doesn't look so conceptual, but actually it is. So uh, Silhouette is um, a little bit introspective thing. And uh, it's a personal personal story about dealing with inner demons. Right. So, so it's uh, rather about um, depression, anxiety, and how they affect your life and perception and how they twist your mentality as the years go by and how you deal with all this. So uh, it was uh, some sort of therapeutic work. And I hope that it will also help 
other people who are experiencing the same issues to somehow feel understood and then eventually to, to help them in this battle. It, it's interesting, too, because for the most part, correct me if I'm wrong, this is an instrumental record. I know there is maybe one song with some yes, some vocals. Yeah. Right. And mm-hmm. the fact that, that you are able to go on this personal journey just through the music, I think, is something really remarkable. And it's something that, you know, is is international in a way because you, you don't have to speak a certain language to feel what you are expressing in the music. And I, I think that's that's something really beautiful because, uh, again, it is an instrumental record. And and how, when you're dealing with inner demons and, and composing music that deals with depression, is it is it something that you just really have to get in the zone? Do you have to really kind of be at one with yourself to express it musically? Do you understand my question? What I'm what I'm yes. trying to yeah. yeah. Normally, this is how I compose because uh, music is, as you said, universal language, and this is how I use it. And uh, it's always uh, a picture of my emotions and thoughts, like some sort of soundscape so to speak. And that's why I sometimes stay even in the campaign uh, for my album. I said in the presentation that I consider myself a musical storyteller. And uh, I, I need special special mental condition, uh, like you said, zone, so I can make this uh, as sincere as possible, and uh, this is where the true, the true art comes up and turns into reality. You you don't need to force it; it comes very naturally. Right on, and the it it sounds like this will be a, a very different album than than Opus eighteen eighty. Can you talk about maybe the differences in the actual sound uh, and? Tell me if I'm correct in, in stating that it's uh, going to be a different direction than that. Uh, uh, yeah, to a certain degree, it's very different, but it's somehow there is there are a lot of similarities because uh, with Opus 2080, I, I decided that I will explore a wider musical palette. And uh, I didn't want to confine myself into certain genre and everything to be like... Um, new classical shred metal and things that I'm being labeled quite often. Right. Um, I I listen to a very wide range of music and I like uh, a wide range of music and um, I don't see a reason why I should limit myself. I can use these things as uh, tools, musical tools to express um, my ideas. And from this perspective, Silhouette uh, is another very rich and colorful experience because it's uh, it's very broad in terms of uh, musical genres and instruments used. Diverse is a word I've Yes, yeah. diverse. And you know, I'm uh, playing several instruments. So uh, besides the guitar, uh, there are, of course, keyboards, but in all right. my albums, 
it's keyboards, but there is also uh, different types of mandolins, flutes, and um, yeah, it's acoustic instruments. Uh, so it's very versatile. It's very melodic, uh, very emotional. It's not so technical. Okay. My previous albums of course uh, for the lovers of shreds there are certain moments that yeah. uh, just satisfy this need right. but most of it is very uh rather rather melodic awesome awesome cool well we are very excited for this record we do want to talk about the the singing on it because as we previously mentioned it is mostly instrumental but there is is it just one song that, that there's some vocals on? And can you tell us uh, about that song and who's working on that song with you vocally? Uh, yes, I had a huge dilemma if I should leave this album entirely instrumental because it's very personal. But at the same time, I wanted to do something with vocals and um one of the reasons is that uh, I needed something with lyrics that could uh, provide additional uh, informational backgrounds of the story of, of the album because um, emotion could be felt, right? But uh, you need just a little bit of adjustment to the... Uh, um, to the story that I, I want to convey. And um, the song uh, is with a female singer, and uh, it's my friend Maya Shining from the Danish metal band Forever Still. And uh, she did a great job. And uh, the song is uh, right now very nice, very heartfelt. And Maya... Is capable of conveying emotions through her singing very, very expressively. And I think she was a great choice for this song. And uh, it's recorded, it's ready, and even a video is coming soon. Oh, wow, cool. Yeah. Cool. And she'll be in the video with, with you? Yes, yes. Oh, excellent, excellent, cool. It's, uh, you know, some uh, sort of playthrough video like everybody does nowadays. So, yeah. Cool. And there is another pretty significant special guest on the record that I want to talk about, a current member of Arch Enemy and somebody who's known for just a great body of work with bands like Nevermore. Can you tell us who else uh, is joining you on this record? Uh, yes, it's a um, dream of mine coming through, which felt like pretty much impossible a couple of years ago. But now I've got uh, Jeff Loomis on wow. my moment. Awesome. It's a huge thing for me, really. I'm I'm very very honored to have him in this album. And um, as a matter of fact, we we were discussing his contribution eventually to Opus eighteen eighteen, but he was very busy with Arch Enemy and so forth. So. Um, we agreed that it will remain for future projects, and now the future project is coming here. So, right, yeah, there is uh, also a playthrough video that is uh, coming up next week. So, this will be another thing for the viewers to enjoy. 
awesome, awesome. And as far as the the album goes, there's obviously production costs, you know, putting recording, uh, making music. It's it's never something that is free or cheap. And, you know, one thing we all do, I know I do it as a podcaster. I have a Patreon page where people support me. And, you know, it's just uh, as artists, as uh, musicians, as broadcasters, it's always good to have the support of the people. How can people support what you're doing? Uh, it's great that you mentioned uh, Patreon because, I mean, <laughs> it, it becomes very popular and I think it's uh, a great platform for all sorts of creators since I myself have a Patreon page, which oh, is cool. Uh, patreon.com slash Alexandra Zerner rocks. And uh, I do their uh, weekly videos, which are educational playthroughs, um, Q&A videos and behind the scenes videos. And I offer tabs and um, many other things, audio downloads and so forth. And uh, regarding my album, uh, you're right that it's a lot of, production cost that needs to be taken care of and this is why I decided to do pre-order campaign again with this album uh, this one is uh, on gogetfunding.com and my campaign is uh, of course gogetfunding.com slash new dash album dash silhouette yeah and we will link link that in today's show notes along with your patreon page so don't worry guys you don't have to write down the link just go to talkingmetal.com and write in the uh, show notes for this episode we'll have both of those pages linked where you can support alexandra and uh, help get this new record delivered and and are there different tiers can people you know get different uh, rewards for what they support or what they uh, pledge yeah. But there are many, many different options. I offer, of course, signed CDs. This time, this is the first album that I offer on vinyl as well. Oh, wow. Awesome. Yes, yes. And uh, in the future, I plan to reissue my uh, other albums on vinyl as well. But uh, this one will be the first one to start. I offer also T-shirts, uh, hoodies, mugs, masks, which are now the trendy thing, you know. Right. Absolutely. And uh, they are so fan packs, which are like bundled things together. And so they're variety of choices. So I think there is something for everyone. And again, it's go get funding. We're going to have that linked through the show notes of today's episode, guys. So you can uh, link through us over to show your support and pledge your support. And, you know, you mentioned uh, the face masks that you're going to be selling. How, how is everything in your part of the world with COVID-19? Are, are, are there restrictions? Uh, what, what is the latest? You're in the Czech Republic, right? Yes. And uh, things are a little bit hectic. Uh, it, it started very well managed, but then there are some deviations. There were some uh, changes in the government health ministers and so forth and uh, there was really big deviations uh, lockdowns then uh, end of lockdowns and lockdowns again and currently it's very restricted again um, 
and yeah basically everyone is staying home uh, only um, essential shops are opened like uh, groceries um, pharmacies and things like that i mean and are they getting the vaccine over there? Are people starting to get vaccinated? Uh, yes, the vaccines uh, started, and uh, they're progressing slowly, but at least they're they're going well. Okay, good. So far, yeah. Good. Well, we we want everyone to stay safe and to get that vaccine when they can, of course. And now you stay so busy, not only with your own music, but you do producing and studio work for a lot of other artists and, and bands and projects. Is there anything else going on at the moment uh, with you musically that you could share with us? Uh, currently, nothing, but uh, recently an acoustic album came out with a singer that I worked together with Bulgarian band. The, the band is called Sevi. And we made uh, yes. one album together a couple of years ago, Follow Me. Yeah, it was great. Yep. Yeah. And the singer made the solo album, which was a sort of acoustic work, and I participated there in few tracks. So this was uh, one of the last things that uh, came out. Another thing is uh, the contribution to Alberto Rigoni's album, uh, Odd Times, which is uh, instrumental progressive rock. Tell me again, her, what's the name of the... Odd Times okay. by Alberto Rigoni. Um, and we were three people there. Uh, Alberto, who is the composer, he's a bass player and great musician. Uh, Marco Mineman on drums. And I played the keyboards and the guitars in the album. And uh, these are the things that were recently happening and awesome. uh, i think we're about to work on a new album with uh, cv so i guess this will be something coming up soon okay and is that cv the band or just cv as a solo artist it will be cv the band right yeah now. Yeah, because I know sometimes that gets a little confusing. She releases, her name is Savy, but so the band's uh, name is Savy yeah, too. Yeah, it's like artistic nickname, sort of, so, yeah. But her name is Svetlana Bliznakova. So uh, this is how she released her solo album under this name. So Savy is more, like, more or less reserved for the band. Right on, right on. And... As far as social media goes, where is the best place people can get in touch with you? Is it Twitter or Instagram? Twitter, I don't really use because I don't know. I, I don't really understand how this platform works. And <laughs> right. I'm okay. very bad at marketing, honestly. Uh, I'm mostly on Facebook, uh, Instagram, and of course, YouTube, which is different kind of platform. But uh, yes, these are the places where I am. Awesome. On a regular basis. And we'll have those linked also in today's show notes, guys, on TalkingMetal.com. And, you know, you do have such diversity in your music. It's a word we used earlier in our discussion. I wanted to ask you, who are some of your biggest influences outside of hard rock, outside of heavy metal? So are there, like, uh, musicians that you listen to that maybe are jazz or classical and what are some of your favorite musicians that are not metal 
this is a great question. Usually nobody takes care to ask me <laughs> about this, but there are actually a lot of influences that are besides uh, right. rock metal. And um, I, uh, of course, many people know that I'm a huge fan of jazz Bach and uh, Beethoven as well, and wow. uh, Antonio Vivaldi and regarding uh, non-classical things um, I'm a huge fan of uh, Pat Metini for example right and uh, Jan Reinhardt I listen to a lot of uh, world music different parts of the world folk music all kinds of uh, I, I really enjoy Celtic music and probably this could be heard as an influence especially in my acoustic works what else um, I'm I'm more or less on uh, waves. At certain points, I get very uh, absorbed by a certain genre, and I listen to a lot of it, and then I move to the next thing. Sometimes I listen to Indian music. Wow, it's it's very interesting because it's challenging the oral perceptions because uh, you know the music system is completely different. Yeah, and. This is where it becomes very interesting and you need to retune your senses. Somehow. And when you say it's completely different, like we're used to musics like, you know, 12 notes, uh, you know, all within one octave there, you know, but then these those notes repeat once you're outside of the octave. In that Indian music, it, it's it's actually, it's not that. It's something different, right? They actually yeah, have a different yeah, sca like scale of very... music. Interesting, yes, the scale is completely different and it's very uh, fluid, it's not so fixed like we get used in the Western music. So, as you said, in Western culture we have uh, 12 equally separated notes, equal distances, where, uh, whereas in uh, Indian music, and not only Indian, but Eastern music, uh, there is a lot of... Um, the, the boundaries between these notes are not so strict. They could uh, move back and forth depending on the mood that the musicians want to convey. So there are um, infinite number of scales that you can use because there's always some offsets that you can use. Right. Wonderful stuff. Alexandra, thank you so much for speaking with us. We're going to have everything linked into the show notes for all your pages, the places people can support you and your, your social media and YouTube. And uh, yeah, we are really looking forward to the new record, Silhouette. And tell us again when it will be released. March something, right? On the 20th of March. Okay, so towards the end of March. We will be anxiously awaiting that. And uh, yeah, thank you for everything you do. And I thank you for having me. <laughs> Big thanks to Stephen for setting up that interview and to Alexandra for joining me. I appreciate it. Definitely support her. We'll have her links up in today's show notes on TalkingMetal.com. And I want to end with a discussion with Tony Kosminski about the one and only Larry Flint, who had Hustler Publications and gave us the great magazine, Rip Magazine. So let's check this out right now here on Talking Metal. 
All right. So to conclude this episode of the Talking Metal podcast, I did want to get into a discussion with my friend Tony Kosminski about somebody that we recently lost, Larry Flint. When I say we, I mean just the society in general and somewhat of a controversial. I mean, that's an understatement, a controversial character for sure. But let's talk about what he did for us young rock fans, which is give us rip magazine. And I was a reader growing up in the uh, Chicago suburbs and then moving to New Jersey. And I know Tony, who I'm about to introduce and bring into the conversation right here, was also a reader. Tony, how are you, man? I'm good, Mark. I'm good. And yeah, so I, I was struck by what you put on social media when I put up something about Larry Flint dying. The first thing you thought of which we're probably in a small club here, but the first thing both of us really thought of is that he did this amazing magazine to me, which was my favorite rock magazine back in the day called Rip Magazine. What what are your memories of Rip Magazine, like discovering it for the first time? My memories of Rip are probably around the 88, 89 period, um, you know, when Metallica was on their Injustice for All tour. And, you know, it, the best thing about rip was you could pick it up and you could get a really really good overall run of mainstream acts like Def Leppard and Bon Jovi then they would get in the heavier acts like you know Metallica, Anthrax, Megadeth but then you know you could also pick the magazine up and read about Soundgarden and King's X um you know they, they were covering the full gamut of hard rock you know that was going in 1988-89 so it had been running for a few years by the time I got into it but that that was definitely where it started for me yeah, and they somehow it's a really good point because unlike and this is my opinion, unlike Circus and Hit Parader magazines, they were able to somehow help lead in the alt heavy alternative rock scene with bands like Jane's Addiction and Soundgarden and even 90s metal bands like Metallica, where some of these other magazines weren't. They weren't as accepted um, as, you know, they tried. They tried to cover Nirvana, but it just it just didn't work for their readers or the sincerity wasn't there. Where, where Rip really was able to cover Warrant and Poison, but yeah, also Jane's Addiction and, you know, Junkyard and Living Color and maybe even like Fishbone or something like that. You know, they, mm -hmm. they really were able to, uh, do that and and they seemed legit and there was to me just an excitement there about what they were doing they somehow really had just a real feeling and it, it, it was not only the writing it was like the pictures and and the whole presentation uh how how much do you think larry flint was involved in setting up the magazine he, he set it up he was basically a funder you know he he you know, gave the green light for it to be run. Um, you know, that was something that Althea, his uh, wife, uh, you know, legendary wife Althea Flint wanted. Um, so he was sort of doing it in her memory after she died. And it, the magazine kind of floundered for that first year when it came out in- uh, So when did she die? She said she set it up and then she died when, do you know? I, I, think he, I think he set it up for her after she had died. I'm just taking a quick look here. Uh, wow. She had actually died so she died June of 87. So no, so it was up and running when she was still uh, alive. It was up and running when she was still alive. Uh, like I said, it kind of came out late 86. I remember the first anniversary issue had done knocking on it. 
And shortly thereafter, shortly after that first anniversary is when Lon Friend took over. Um, and Lon actually was really close with Althea. Uh, he was so close with Althea that um, when they made The People versus Larry Flint, the movie. Uh, they put, yeah, they, the movie, they put him in touch with Courtney Love. Uh, you know, and he would give her tips and pointers. Uh, and, and like, you know, I don't know if people know this, but like a lot of the clothes that Courtney Love wore in that movie were actually Althea's clothes. Uh, so, so Lon, from my understanding, you know, Rip was the first non-pornographic title that, you know, some publications had. Uh, it, they went on to do a lot of other stuff over the years, but that was the first one. And the first year, it was just sort of floundering and it was sort of there. And I guess, you know, I'm not sure if Larry took a liking to Lon, if he was doing it out of Althea's memory, or if Lon really, really made a good pitch, but he pitched it. And I believe with the Steven Tyler uh, issue, which came on the 87, he took it over from there until mid-94. And then Catherine Turman and a few other people took it over and told the magazine eventually stopped running. I think it was in 96, I believe. Right. Yeah, so, so when Lon took that over, what he was really doing at that point is he started gathering best and brightest to write for America. And, and what he did with some of those people is he just, you know, he, he hired them, you know, he, he got Stefan Drazi, who was writing for Kerrang, and he gave, he got him to write exclusively for Rip in America. Another band that was coming out around this time was Guns N' Roses. And uh, they, you know, Lon had befriended them and they told him that for a friend, Bill James was a great writer. So of course, Lon went ahead and hired Bell. Um, one of the things that was interesting about Bell is even though Rip covered a lot of Guns N' Roses pieces, a lot of the one -on -one interviews with Axel in the 90s came from Bell. So that's where it's really that interesting. And so, I mean, it just kind of went on and on. And, you know, he, you know, again, I mentioned Catherine Turman, she's a great writer, still working um, Alice Cooper's radio show and still writing her own. Um, that always separated Rip apart from the others is that they were able to go deep with the artists in a way that um, this normal, you know, Q&A magazines like Metal Edge and Circuits and Greater couldn't. Right, right. And is that because they had a trust with the artists? There was, for whatever reason, there was there was this trust there. And it's that in any way tie back to Larry Flint and Hustler. You know, they would they would bring the artists in and, and let, let's face it, whatever you think of Hustler now, uh, there's a lot of these, you know, rockers back in a, a time where our PC values were maybe somewhat different, really thought that that was a cool thing to be brought into the rip slash hustler offices. And I know sometimes they would give them a little goodie bag of magazines to, to when they left the office. I mean, this, this was, this was pretty cool for a lot of rockers. It didn't work for all of them. I think in Lon's book, he talks about bringing Nirvana in and they, they weren't into it when he gave them some free yeah. hustler magazines and stuff. Yeah, so it was a really, you know, interesting time. I mean, but, you know, besides the allure of, you know, Larry Flint and Hustler, I think what they were able to really do there was to make a magazine that really, you know, stood shoulder to shoulder with Kerrang, which was kind of the UK counterpart to Rip. And Kerrang had been, you know, running it from the mid 80s and uh, really took on another life of its own in the 90s. That was a weekly, Rip was a monthly, but they had a lot of the same writers and they had a lot of the... Uh, similar artists in them. So it was, it was a really exciting time, um, especially in pre-internet days, you know, to pick up a magazine and, you know, have every, all the types of hard rock and alternative music you wanted in one magazine. Right on. And, you know, it's interesting because Krang, for me as a kid, I got my first issue of that when I was like 13 or 14. Quiet Riot was on the, on the cover. 
and it was it was so um what's the word it, it was not readily available like you couldn't walk into the jewel and pick it up in the mm-hmm. um newsstand section which you could years later with with rip uh and in the problem with crying that i had you know as a kid with a paper route and and you know didn't have endless funds to my name was that it was marked up and i remember they would charge you know magazines back in those days were what like two three bucks and for that they would charge like an extra dollar on top of uh, you know and they put it in a like a sealed thing because it was coming over from from the uk and it actually had pounds written on the on the front cover Mm -hmm. so it was a little more expensive so to me yeah rip that's a good analogy i never really thought of that rip in some ways was uh maybe a replacement or a companion a more readily available companion to uh, Krang magazine for American kids growing up. And I, I just, again, just for me, there was just this realism to it that the other magazines didn't have. Because even before Rip, I remember looking at Circus and I even went back to like my, my preteen days. We would buy sometimes 16 magazine to get info on Kiss, which was almost more like geared towards girls in in some ways but they used to cover kiss and it was just it wasn't until rip that i really really felt like wow this um this this is some quality journalism and it felt like it paid respect to the music that i liked whereas the other ones never really got that i mean maybe a little bit with metal edge i don't know if you remember metal edge oh yeah very much so jerry miller that was all jerry miller she was a top top flight editor and she did so much of that herself. Yeah. You know, she, she did a lot of the writing, editing, photographing, going to the shows. You know, it was interesting though, you know, where, if we're talking about rip, she was out in New York, you know what I mean? So she kind of had like the East coast and she did more of a Q and a of, you know, you know, for, for the fans and there was, there was more pinups. Um, you know, it was, it was a really good companion piece. I guess you could say to, you know, rip, because, you know, there would be some, there'd be a feature article on an artist that you're following, but then you wouldn't, read up again on them for another three or four months. Whereas, you know, metal edge kind of covered a lot of the same artists month to month. Yeah. And with rip, like when, when Rolling Stone would do an article on Don Henley or something, you know, it was, it was like, they really gave respect to Don Henley. This is back in the day, you know, mm-hmm. whereas like circus, it always kind of had like a goofy tilt and, and vibe to it. And I felt like rip, wasn't all seriousness, but they were able to uh, tightrope that line between f- the fun and and let's face it, cheese. Because a lot of a lot of these bands were kind of cheesy, but that's what we loved about them. But still, show them some respect at the time. And and again, I I do think it like what you pointed out earlier is really important that it had a wider net, you know, uh, than than a lot of the. Uh, earlier 80s or even 70s rock magazines as far as the genres that it could could cover and i think that it you know we always point to mtv and know they started playing nirvana but i think rip truly helped also usher in the alternative scene in a lot of ways what do you think about that well they absolutely did they they absolutely did they were supposed to the first tour that rip was ever going to promote was the debut tour of mother love bone And, um, you know, their lead singer, unfortunately, you know, died before that was even a possibility, but that they were gonna, they were gonna proceed with that. Um, 
you know, the other thing is like they were covering, you know, they, they were really doing a lot with living color and, uh, you know, they covered anthrax and public enemy when, when they were doing things. Now, you know, a little footnote here that a lot of people don't know is once Lon took over, he would do these anniversary parties and they would usually take place in October or November of every year. And they take place like at the Hollywood Palladium. And, uh, you know, like one year he got Lars Ulrich on drums and Sebastian Bach on, uh, you know, vocals. And I'm forgetting the name of it. I think it was called like GAC. You know, they, they got somebody from Guns N' Roses, right. Anthrax. And, you know, they did kind of like a super band, you know. And uh, one year, you know, the agreement that he made with, with John Bon Jovi was, you know, you want the cover, you got to play the, rip an- the fifth rip anniversary party, which, you know, John did. Um, but like what a lot of people don't realize is that in, I think it was October, November of 91. Now it's important to note that this is, you know, the fall of 91 where, you know, there was a lot of hype around, you know, Ozzy's no, no more uh, tears. And then there was a lot of hype around Guns N' Roses, Use Your Illusion, Metallica's Black album. Um, and what they got that year was, is they got Soundgarden, they got Pearl Jam, they got Alice in Change. And then at the end of the night, they had a Temple of the Dog Jam. Again, this is 1991. And um, it was, Yes, Nirvana was out, um, you know, Nevermind came out late September, Pearl Jam's 10 came out late August, but this was like the beginning of the ascent. None of these bands were household names at this point, and no one knew about this Temple of the Dog album. I mean, the album didn't even chart, and, you know, here they are performing Hunger Strike at the Rip Anniversary Party, and you can actually see tiny bits of footage of that in um, Cameron Curl's Pearl Jam 20 documentary. So they were absolutely, um, you know, ahead of the curve on that. And like I said, I think part of that, you know, that was interesting is Lon, you know, I, I don't know if I ever considered him a metalhead. The more I got to know him, he had, you know, his, his love of music came from, you know, more eccentric taste, prog rock and all that. And I think he saw kinship in a lot of that alternative music that was coming out at the time. Yeah, that's a good point. And of course, when you say Lon, we're talking about Lon Friend, who was the editor of Rip Magazine and of course larry flint would be correct me if i'm wrong the the publisher actually have an issue publisher yeah yep um i'm pulling up an issue right here from uh let's see april 1990 keith richards and don dockin on the cover and i'm flipping through the pages right now and i don't have my let's see yeah larry flint publisher lon friend executive editor craig jones art director um, some familiar, I'll skip some of these names, but Del James, of course, senior editor. So yeah, some real great names there that we, that we all know. And, um, what was I going to say? Oh, so let's, let's, let's talk a little bit about Lon and then we'll circle back to Larry Flint. Now, Lon, you wrote, a, you helped Lon with his, his first book. Could you talk a little bit about that, Tony? Yeah, you know, that was Life on Planet Rock. And, um, you know, when Lon and I connected in the early 2000s, it was something that he had at the forefront of his mind that he wanted to do. So we started talking about it immediately. And he had an email newsletter, you know, and we would talk and I would, you know, tell him, you know, I would ask him questions about certain pieces and it kind of sent him down that memory lane because I always wanted to know more. And um, so, yeah, so that kind of started in like 2001, 2002, where we were talking about it. And then took a few years for it to gestate before he really started working on it. Um, and then from like, you know, 2000, mid 2004 until really for me, at least until the end of 2005, it was a really intense period where I was helping him fact check, you know, helping him, you know, 
are, you know, dive into that memory of his to see what else is there um, <clears throat> and what other conversations he had with these people and interactions. But yes, yeah, so, I mean, that, that eventually came out in 2006 and that kind of covered a lot of his uh, journey throughout the years with a large piece on the rip years. Um, it's a great you know, like read. I said, you know, excellent read. Yeah, it is a good read. It is definitely a good read. I was going to say, again, Rip Magazine, if you don't know its history, it is uh, well worth picking up some issues. I, I've bought some issues like on eBay and online. You can find them. They're, they're, they're so uh, such a, a, a great, unique look into rock history, if you will. And unfortunately, my mom threw out all mine when I when I moved out of the house, so I don't have my actual old issues left from back in the day. Do you, Tony? Do you still have any of your originals? I have most of my originals. Good for and, you, man. Um, yeah, and I think I found an eBay lot about a decade back. Um, you know, that was real at the time was really cheap, and I got a good deal on it. So yeah, so I, I have some of that. And it's, it's funny when I um, occasionally have written some pieces for Ultimate Classic Rocks, and I'm looking for an old quote or something. I've been able to dig, dig those out and uh, you know, you know, mine them because there's there's some really really great interviews and quotes from the artists in them. Right. And in recent years, I'm not sure how long ago, there was a guy, Chris, I think his name is Chris Bush, and he, he actually noticed that the trademark had lapsed and bought up the trademark. And you can now buy real cool rip merchandise and stuff that he he sells, I know, T-shirts and, and whatnot. And I don't know, I always got the vibe. I've spoken with Chris before. We even did a uh, video interview with him that's up on YouTube, he and Lon that he was going to do more with the RIP name, but it seems like every year goes by and nothing really happens. So I'm not sure. It, do you think there planning. could be a, a future for yeah. RIP? Yeah, he's still planning on that. Um, I actually talked to Chris here and there because he helped Lon with his second book. And, uh, you know, of course, he called me up for you know advice and counsel when he, when he was doing that. But, uh you know, he, he's still planning for it. I think he was planning a lot of things in, in 2020. And I, unfortunately, I think the COVID pandemic put a lot of that on the back burner. Um, I do know he scanned most of the issues. You know, he wants to, you know, kind of get a site up and running, you know, also make it an active site, not just one to kind of look at. Um, that is still, you know, and I, and I told him whatever help he needs with that, I'm, I'm willing to help. Um, that's still in his plans. But, uh, you know, I think he's waiting for, you know, the world to be a little more, um, a little less chaotic, I think, is the right way to put it before that happens. Yeah, I, I offered to help him, too, with video production stuff. I mean, I, I've worked on, you know, that metal show. And, and recently this summer, we did a metal series for the Sci-Fi Channel called Metal Crush. I, I'd love to work with him on that, but he said he has a production team. It just, I, I don't know. I, I have to admit, after so many years of, of anticipating and waiting for something and hearing that stuff is on the way, I, I'm starting to have some doubts myself but I, I i wonder how much value there still would be in the rip name that's that's something i've thought about because i i know like hip parader now um has that name is being used by a, a production company that's going to be putting out uh content and stuff and I don't even I don't even know if young kids know like Hit Parader and Circus Magazine. I mean, do people under forty know about these things? I don't think so. No, I you know I, I was watching a movie the other day, and um, you know the the guy goes and buys a bunch of magazines, and it was really bizarre to watch. 
you know, just because in this day and age, because I don't see them aside from like a grocery store checkout counter or, you know, occasionally in an airport. And it's it, it just people just get all their information on the Internet nowadays. Um, you know, and it's almost like if you have those old articles, you know, or those old magazines, you know, stacked up, you have a treasure trove of information that just not anywhere on the internet. Um, you know, and I know like Ian Christie did that, you know, when he wrote his Van Halen book, he had, you know, these stacks of a hundred plus magazines, you know, with interviews from the guys in Van Halen that he basically used to, you know, start his narrative for his book. Um, and you know, what's crazy is tons of that stuff is not anywhere online. So it's a good point. You know, it, it's an, it, it's an interesting world that we live in, in that, you know, there's, there's this new culture, uh, in young people who are constantly complaining about, um, websites going under and people who freelance, you know, they write for a certain site and the site might go under because there's so many now. And, you know, people who, you know, wrote reviews that got, you know, some, in some cases, tens of thousands of hits, you know, went viral and they're nowhere to be found now. Um, so it's a little bit, you know, like when we were growing up in that, you know, a magazine would come out or, you know, a, a certain publication or a book, and if it goes out of print, you know, finding it is real hard. Um, you know, if you have a book or something, there's always the library, but it's, I don't know. It's an interesting world. And in terms of, you know, ripping all those other magazines, I, I don't know if any of them really, you know, what they would be like in today's, you know, climate, you know. And, yeah, and the I thing think, is, is that, I think they know, would need a major push and marketing campaign to relaunch it and introduce it to people under 40, you know, which could be done. But it's it's not it's not something that's going to uh, be easy, in my opinion. But Man, how great would it be for a return of of Rip giving us some sort of content? And just to circle back what you to what you said earlier, uh, Martin Popoff said something very similar to me. And when I was trying to track down some some fact about something, he was like, "Mark, so much of this history," and he was talking about music history, but I think it's probably history in general is not available on the internet. It just never made it from that hard copy of the magazine or the newspaper to the online stuff. And there's just so much of it that's lost or or not available, readily available. And and sometimes it takes more digging to get to get to it. And that that can be something really exciting. And I recently signed up for this, I'm going off on a total left turn here, but this newspaper site where I can research newspaper articles uh, you know, all the way back to the turn of the century. And there's so much just great stuff in there that you can't get with a Google search. It's all, all the old microfiche. Remember that stuff loaded oh, yeah, loaded into a site? Yeah, and you got to pay. Of course, they charge you 10 bucks a month, so I don't think I'm going to subscribe for that long. But, man, it's so much fun to just go on there and, and research stuff. And I had, um, uh, I had Carmine, a piece, tell me a story about an article that had appeared in a newspaper and back in the early 80s and I went back and I actually found the article that he was referencing and it's funny because memories aren't reality in a lot of times and the way he had described the article was a little bit different from how the article actually read so it is it is important I think for any history buffs out there to get out there and and just really take that take that extra search you know and 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 look for these old magazines read these old magazines because as crazy as and awesome as the internet is, it is missing quite a bit of history. Well, it's, you know, I'm thinking about Rip here. You know, there was a 
few really long-form Axel interviews, Axel Rose interviews that Del James did in the early 90s. Um, and they're really revealing. I mean, just amazing stuff. And, you know, now I'm thinking about it. It's like if anybody were to, you know, really do a book on that period, you know, you would really need, like, some of those interviews. And, like, the only way to get them is, you know, probably to go on eBay and to find, old, you know, old magazines. And, um, you know, and like, another thing is, is, like, you know, I remember Lon was like one of the first people to hear the Def Leppard record Adrenalize. And we have to remember, like, he went out to Ireland to meet with Joe and the band. And this was after Steve Clark had died. You know, it's a really, you know, and I know Adrenalize is by no means, you know, their best record or their most memorable, but that was a big deal back then, you know, and coming off the death of a major member, coming off an album that had somehow outsold the previous, which was Pyromania. And, you know, like, those are stories that deserve to be, you know, documented you know, and, and kept for, for all time. And they're just sort of floating out there. So that's, that's, uh, you know, as the, uh, as a historian and somebody that loves, the, you know, hearing about uh, interviews and things from the past and documenting it, it's, it's hard that that stuff isn't, you know, more readily available. Agree. Agree. And we will end with this Larry Flint. Now, I, I, you know, I, I loved the movie that starred, uh, who, who is Courtney Love and um, Woody, Harrelson. Woody Harrelson. Woody Harrelson. He did a great job in that. And it's something that since Larry's dying uh, of a week ago or so, it's something I want to go back and watch just to see and, and kind of relive that. And it's it's interesting, though, because I thought when he died, he wasn't real celebrated in the press, whereas I feel like maybe 20, 15, 20 years ago, he may have been more so. And I can't help but wonder, and I don't want to open up a political discussion or anything, but where does he fit in in today's society? Here's a guy who would, you know, offer bounties and rewards for information on quote unquote conservative lawmakers and preachers. And, and stuff like that and try to kind of prove that they were hypocrites and not good people, although they portrayed themselves like good people. But yet he was also somebody who ran a pornography empire. Let's face it, that's, that's, what, that's where he made his money. And it was a step more than Playboy. It wasn't, I think, saying that the pictures were classy and, and, and stuff is, is really a stretch in my, in my, uh, opinion. And, you know, I had somebody on, on Facebook said to me, you know, I said, I don't, I don't know if he would be, you know, celebrated today like he used to be. And somebody said, oh, well, that's just uppity people who don't like hot chicks. And, and I was just like, hmm, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it, it, is it, is, should he be celebrated? To me, I, I tend to think, the political correctness has gone almost too far. And this is just my personal opinion. And that we do need to look at Larry Flynn as somebody who pushed the envelope and fought for free speech and really did some things to better our country. But I don't think, I don't know if that's going to be a popular opinion in today's climate of, of me too and cancel culture and all this other stuff. And again, not to open it up into a political conversation, but I just don't know how the left or right celebrates Larry King or Larry King, <laughs> Larry Flint, Larry King's another story. Larry, Larry Flint in 2021. He's a complicated character, you know, I, and I think that is something that as a society that we really need to, you know, balance. We, we need to balance two conflicting thoughts in our brain at the same time. You know, on the one hand, 
he um, was this First Amendment crusader. I mean, he took a bullet for it. Um, you know, he, you know, I mean, my favorite quote is, if the First Amendment protects a scumbag like me, then it'll protect all of you because I'm the worst. Wow. Um, you know, he, I mean, he was somebody that fought for it. And I mean, th- I mean, this is a case that, you know, and people in law school, when he went to the Supreme Court, you know, with the, with the Jerry Falwell case, I mean, this is, this is a case that people study in law school. Every law school in the country studies this. I mean, that is something that's just unbelievable. I mean, how many people can, you know, can say that? That, that case is going to be studied not just decades from now, but, you know, literally centuries from now. Um, now, the thing is, is that he did make his empire and he did make his money on, on for, for lack of a better word, on exploiting people. Um, you know, it wasn't like, you know, all those people that appeared in his magazines were, you know, got paid the same amount of money he did. So that's, that's the rub, you know, the, you know, does what he did later in life erase that? I don't know. It's not for me to say, but I think it's really complicated, you know, and I think, you know, we are living in a society where women have more of a say, and I think we're living in a society where women are going to be leaders. Um, so, you know, we do have to listen to them. And if they were in that position, you know, when he was coming up, you know, would he have been as successful? And I, you know, and I, I don't think so. Um, you know, it was a very male dominated society and we didn't look at, you know, women the same way, which is a shame and it's criminal. So I think, you know, I, I don't know, you know, what his legacy is going to be. You know, I think people can be outraged at what he did. And I think they can, um, you know, be bad at the times, you know, where, where women weren't treated as equals. But on the flip side, you know, you can look at a lot of the good he did. And like I said, he, you know, in, back in the 90s, he brought down, um, you know, the Speaker of the House for the Republicans in 1998 because he found, you know, he did his own private investigation on him. So, you know, like I said, he's a complicated character. I, I don't have the answers. I do think, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see, you know, how history looks at him. And yeah. I, don't, I don't know if we're going to notice it this week or next week, but probably some years from now. Right. Yeah, it is. It is interesting. And, you know, it's just uh, I, I just find it fascinating. And again, we'll end it here because I don't want to get into a, a whole political discussion that things have just split so extremely and that you know the guy who used to go into 7-elevens in 1985 and buy a hustler magazine and he worked at the factory and he drove a pickup and he owned a handgun back in those days that guy very well may have voted for a Democrat, whereas I feel today he would never, ever do that, you know, and, and it's it's to me, Larry Flynn fits into that culture far more than than he does nowadays. And I, I do think things evolve and change and we, we shall see where we are, uh, you know, a decade from now or two decades from now. But I think Larry Flynn's contributions to society uh, were far outweigh any negativity uh, that that he that he brought to the table, and uh, you know, listen, he, he he just gave us the greatest rock magazine of all time, and that would be Rip Magazine. So we'll leave it there, unless you have anything else you want to add, Tony. No, no, I, I think that's a good way to end it. Absolutely, Larry Flint, who was born, I think I, I saw 1942. November 1st, mm-hmm. 1942, and who left us on February 10th, 2021, and was the publisher behind Rip Magazine. Again, Tony helped Lon Friend, the editor, write his book that was Life on Planet Rock. Well worth uh, tracking down a copy of that and, and uh, reading it. 
very great stories in that. And you guys did a great job writing that, you and Lon. So thank you for your time, Tony. Thanks, Mark. Where else, before I let you go, where else can people check you out online? Is it the Twitter feed? Uh, Twitter, yeah, Twitter at, uh, at, you know, it's the screen door. Uh, and then uh, I'm also on Instagram, the screen door music. And, uh, you know, if people want to find me on uh, Facebook, you know, they can send me a friend request if they want to chat music. Cool. Awesome. Larry Flint, man. Wow. Passed away just recently. And big thanks to Tony Kosminski for joining me here on the Talking Metal podcast. Big thanks to you for listening. I hope you have a happy week. I really do. We're getting through this, guys. I have my second jab in my arm. I'm ready to rock mentally and physically. When I say rock, I don't mean I'm not just talking about going to concerts. I'm ready to get my kids back to school. I'm ready to go out and have a pint at the bar. I'm ready to hang out with my wife, go away on a little trip. And, and you know, I know some of you are already there, even though you don't have the shot. And some of you won't be there for a while, emotionally and physically. But when you can, for me, please get, get the jab for me and for you. Let's get this world back on, on track. I speak about this uh, in the latest episode of the Talking with Mark Striegel podcast, which is my other podcast. If you don't subscribe to it, please do. Uh, please leave a review for Talking Metal on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get it. We're back on iHeart now, too. So Talking Metal Rising for sure. All right. <laughs> 